I would encourage you to open your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, We've been going through this book of the Bible for a few months now, uh, several months maybe even. We're nearing the end of it. Uh, We have a few more weeks left. But we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, the first 10 verses. I'll give you a moment to find that. Uh, But no one, to my knowledge, likes thorns. Uh, Maybe you're some uh, unusual person who likes thorns, uh, but I don't think probably if we did a poll that any of us in here would say that we like thorns. We know how bad they can sting, right? When we have a little raspberry bush in our yard, and when I go to grab raspberries, there's these little prickly thorns on there sometimes, and I'm reminded how bad they hurt. Uh, On roses, we cut off the thorns typically, right? We uh, avoid thorns. We wear gloves when we're doing gardening work or when we're pulling weeds. We uh, wear shoes if we're walking in the yard where we know there's going to be those prickly thorns on the ground. Uh, We do everything we can to avoid thorns. And in my opinion, life would be much better without thorns, right? Uh, Life would be much easier. It would seem to be much better without thorns. But the question that the text today is going to make us think about is, what about metaphorical thorns? Uh, for, throughout human history, uh, human beings have used this common experience of thorns, of being pricked by thorns. They've used thorns as a metaphor, as a picture for the struggles of human existence, for the, the pains that we go through, the stings, the sicknesses, the, the sufferings of our life. And we tend to think, if you're anything like me as human beings, we tend to think that life would be better without those types of thorns as well. That just as we want to get rid of every possible physical thorn in life, we want to get rid of every metaphorical thorn in our life too. We think life would be infinitely better without sufferings. But today's text, it's a challenging one. I'd cover your prayers even as we come to it. Because this text, maybe more than any other in all of Scripture, is going to challenge our answer to that question of whether life would really be better without those thorns. Uh, I think this text, it will challenge us. It may surprise us what its answer is. Uh, it, may, uh, it may stretch us. It may startle us even of what God says about thorns in our flesh and how he uses them. This text, not to spoil it for you, but as we read it, we're going to see that it tells us that God gives thorns in our flesh. That God sends them to us at times. And even harder, sometimes he lets them remain. Like that they're not just temporary or momentary. This has very hard things to say to us, but I trust that by the end of it, as we read it and as we try to unpack it together, that God will help us to see that thorns in our flesh, if we are Christians, thorns in our flesh are not an expression of his anger or a demonstration of his absence, but they're actually a grace of him toward us. So I want to read this text for us. I'd encourage us all to be humble and remember as we come to a text like this that we let God tell us about what he is like. That we listen to him tell us what he's like. We don't come to God with our own assumptions about what he must be like or what he can and can't do, uh, but that we come to the Bible letting him speak to us about what he's like, about how he orients our life. And so we're going to read this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to 10. If you have not been with us, very, very fast recap. This is written by the Apostle Paul to a church at Corinth. There was a church that he had, humanly speaking, he had started, a church that he loved. But while he's been away for a few years, there have been these rival teachers, these rival apostles who have been kind of rising up within this church who are telling that church that they don't need to listen to Paul. 
They've set themselves up against Paul, and they've been trying to boast about their superiority, their giftedness, their experiences that they have that they think outpace Paul's. And they've been then stacking uh, those up and saying, listen to us, Corinthian church. Don't listen to him. And so Paul has entered into this in chapter 11, this kind of... uh, boasting contest with them he's kind of been reluctant to do it but like all right we'll do this like we'll play this game if you want to put your boasts up against mine and we're, we're going to read today is the very end of that little contest of sorts that boasting contest uh, that Paul has uh, reluctantly entered into and we're going to see him talk about the highest of highs like one of his highest boasts humanly speaking, that he could offer of something that happened to him. But then he's going to talk about his lowest of lows, this thorn in his flesh. And we're going to see that what he boasts in is not that high, but it's the thorn. And we'll see why. So follow along with me, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. In this text, we see Paul talk about the the grace of Jesus towards him. Uh, We see him talk at the beginning about these pleasant graces that Christ gave to him that are unspeakably sweet, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But then he talks about the painful graces of Jesus in his life. And what he wants to spend the most time on is the painful ones, to try to help the Corinthians and by extension to help us to see that those actually are gifts of God's grace to us. Um, But he starts in this boasting contest by beginning with the pleasant graces, the things that if humans just looked around at things to be impressed by, that this would be near the top of our list of things that have happened to him. And he starts by sharing this pleasant grace of Jesus in his life. Uh, It is a trip to heaven. Uh, My family just got back from a vacation out west. It was glorious. It was beautiful. It was not heaven, though. There was plenty of sin involved and, and cactuses and 115 degrees of heat and whatnot. Paul got to actually go to heaven like he, he says that 14 years prior he had been uh, swept up that he had been caught up 
into heaven. And what, what it seems like is going on as he enters into chapter 12 here is that those false teachers that were there in Corinth, one of the things that they were boasting about, that they were bragging about, saying, you know, I think we're even better than Paul at this, was revelations and visions. Uh, that they were saying, hey, we have all these special experiences with God. We have him tell us things and show us things and give us dreams. He, he shows us these things. And these people at Corinth were starting to be impressed by this. They were, they were starting to be swept up in, in how wonderful and impressed they were um, by these teachers there and the things that God was apparently giving to them. And it's like as Paul has heard these guys are bragging about their visions and revelations, he's saying like, hold on a minute and listen to what God gave to me one time. And he points them back to this experience 14 years ago when he was taken up to heaven itself, that he was swept up to the third heaven, he calls it. And it's kind of confusing, I acknowledge in the first half of this text, because it seems like he's talking about somebody else. It seems like he's talking about this man uh, who got swept up into heaven uh, and it, he seems kind of detached from it, like he's maybe just heard about it. He's talking to the third person. But as you get down into verse 6, it's very clear that Paul's actually talking about himself. He starts talking about the things in the first person. That if I were, if I were to boast about this trip to heaven, I wouldn't be wrong to do so. He's saying, that happened to me. He's kind of cryptic about it at the beginning, talking about it in the third person, because he's reluctant to boast. He's reluctant to brag about this gift of this experience that God gave to him. He, he doesn't want people to just uh, believe him and be in awe of him because of something that happened to him 14 years ago. He says he wants them to believe uh, that what, based on what, he, what they see in him and hear from him now. That's the end of verse 6, right? He doesn't want them to be overly impressed by something that happened to him long ago, but he wants them to be impressed by the good news that he's sharing with them right now, the good news of Jesus. But he says that he was caught up into the third heaven in verse 2. That It's not like there, there's actual layers of heaven, but there's a figurative way of him talking about the highest of heavens, uh, that he was taken up into the very presence of God. He calls it paradise in verse 3. And he doesn't tell us a lot of specifics about what it was like or what he saw or what he heard, does he? Uh, there's things I wish that we could know about what that was like. He doesn't even know if he was physically taken up in his body or whether it was just in his spirit taken up into heaven. He says a couple times, I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. God knows. He just knows he was taken to heaven in some form. And he says that he saw, or more specifically that he heard things there, in verse 4, that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And this isn't so much that he's forbidden to utter it, but that it's almost impossible to even express what it was like. Uh, that it was so grand, so different, so glorious, that it's almost impossible for him to even relate what it was like. And though this happened 14 years prior to when Paul was sitting down to write Second Corinthians, it seems to be very vivid in his mind. That it's right there at the front of his mind, he can recall it. It was a glorious, glorious experience. A, a sweet, a pleasant grace of Jesus to let him be swept up into heaven. Uh, to be told things, to be, uh, be encouraged while he was there. And I'll, I'll make a note here that when he's talking about these revelations and visions, he's not talking about 
what he experienced, he's not talking about the same type of revelations that he talked about back in 1 Corinthians. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 14, and we've been trying to grow in that as a church, where we believe that sometimes the Spirit does make things known to us that's intended to be shared with the church for their encouragement, for their building, for their growing up into Christ. What he's experienced, though, in this time 14 years prior was a unique kind of revelation that is not expected to be given to to just average Christian he was actually taken up into heaven it seems like it was very personal for him something that was to prepare him for some of the sufferings that he would face for some of the trials that he would endure and this would this trip to heaven was to minister to Paul himself I'm sure he had revisited it countless times he had thought it back over in his mind those things that he had heard and seen while he was there and he 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 in this boasting contest, puts that on the table. That happened to me. Like, if you want to be impressed by a gift that God has given, be impressed by that, not by what, what these other false teachers are offering you. But more than talking about this pleasant grace of Jesus in his life, what Paul is quickly turning to and more eager to talk about is the painful grace of Jesus in his life. He, he mentions that pleasant one, but it's kind of reluctantly and kind of, vaguely he's not wanting to spend too much time on that pleasant grace of Jesus he wants to spend more time talking about the painful grace of Jesus in his life and as we turn to verse 7 you see that him him talk about Christ's grace in giving a thorn Christ's grace in giving the thorn in verse 7 if you look at verse 7 it's kind of a long sentence but notice that it starts and ends with the same phrase it's repeated isn't it He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. That's how he starts the verse. That's how he ends it. Two times he says, there's this thorn given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. Uh, He doesn't elaborate on what this means or what it looked like, but we we know from reading that that there was this danger at that time in Paul's life of him potentially becoming too proud of him becoming too full of himself, too elated, too overwhelmed with himself as he experienced some of these revelations from God. That's what he says near the beginning of verse 7, right? He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So because he was experiencing these glorious things, being swept up into heaven, getting to see God himself apparently and hear angels and see the resurrected Jesus again, there's this temptation coming on the heels of that to become puffed up, to become proud, right? This is important for us to know because even wonderful, true, powerful encounters with God can become temptations to pride, can't they? That's an ironic thing. That that even these sweet engagements with God where he's ministering to us, where we have fellowship with him, even those things, while we're still these fallen human beings, can become a temptation to pride, to become puffed up, to become full of ourself. You may never have experienced some of these things before, but when we have those kind of mountaintop experiences with God, it can become easy, it can become a temptation to start to think that we have reached some higher plane than just everybody else as Christians. Right? That, that we've reached some sort of special fellowship with God. We've reached some sort of, of peak, higher plane that nobody else has access to. And we can start to, to view ourselves as being above our fellow Christians. We can start to think that we are particularly special. That we are this like amongst the chosen people of God. We're like the especially chosen. We are like this second tier layer of Christians. And we can even start to think that we're in that category even though it doesn't exist 
because of our godliness, because of how hard we work for Jesus, because of how much we're willing to sacrifice for him, uh, we can start to become tempted to be puffed up. And when God just gives pleasant graces to us, when Christ just gives pleasant graces to us, is it not easy when we're receiving pleasant gifts to become forgetful of God? To, to become uh, where we think that we are in control of our life? We think that we have everything under wraps. We think that we have everything figured out. We're, we're not experiencing hardship. It's easy for us to forget God. Pleasant graces tempt us to forget God, don't they? Painful ones do not. Like painful ones shout at us of our, our need. They shout at us of our, our desperation, of our weakness. And Paul says that this thorn, this is where this language comes in in verse 7, this thorn was given him in his flesh precisely to protect him against pride, doesn't he? He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. Twice he says that. To keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And we don't know what this thorn was. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled, guessing, speculating. What is this thorn? What was it? Was it a sickness? Was it a person? Was it some, uh, something uh, in his life that uh, was a physical ailment or a social ailment? Or we, we don't know. And I'm not going to even try to speculate or guess what the thorn was. Paul could have said what it is. Maybe the Corinthians knew what it was that he was referring to, but we do not. But what we do know about this thorn that was given him in the flesh, we know it was something painful, right? Because he talks about this messenger of Satan sent to harass him. That is not a pleasant thing, that's a painful thing. We know that this thorn was something new, that it wasn't just something he had dealt with all of his life, right? He says that it was given after these revelations, after this trip into heaven was when this thorn was given, Right? It was given to him in that moment, in that time, to keep him from becoming prideful. And we also know, lastly, that this was a persistent thing. That it was a thorn that, that was persistent. That wasn't just a, a momentary fleeting thing, but it was something that lasted. It was something that stuck. So how could that, whatever that thorn was, how could that actually achieve this goal of preventing pride, preventing conceit, guarding Paul against that uh, that pridefulness. Well, I've already alluded to this, but there is something about suffering, and you've all probably lived through this. You maybe are living through this right now. There's something about suffering. There's something about thorns in our life, thorns in our flesh, that bursts our bubbles of self-sufficiency, that, that makes us stop believing any illusion that we are God that we are capable of anticipating all of our problems and shielding ourselves from all our problems. Suffering, thorns make us remember, they expose our ignorance, don't they? That sometimes we can't figure out, we can't think through this problem enough to figure out a way out of it. They, they make us face, these thorns make us face our lack of control. They make us face our weakness and our inability to fix things. And if we are tempted to become prideful and think that we are better than everyone else, that we are some second tier of Christian who God is just blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing, it rids us of that notion, doesn't it? Pride is such a dangerous, dangerous thing. 
this belief that we are holier than others, this belief that we are God, this belief that we are in control is so dangerous to us that God is, it was so dangerous to Paul that God was willing to send a thorn into his flesh to prevent him from it, right? John Piper said this, he said that humility is more important than freedom from pain. That is, that's a sentence that could take a lifetime to swallow and believe that humility is more important than freedom from pain. And, and God wanted to work humility into Paul, and he was willing to, to bring pain into his life, to bring a thorn into his life. And you may be wondering, where do, why do you think, why do I think that it's God who brings this thorn? Why do I think that it's Jesus who gives it? He says in verse 7 that the thorn was given, right? Right in the middle of the verse, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, right? So the question is, who gave it? It was given by someone. It, it was, this thorn was given to Paul. Thorns are given to us, but who is it given by? It may be tempting for us, given in verse 7, that the very next phrase says, a messenger of Satan was sent to harass me, to think, well, it's Satan that's giving him the thorn in the flesh. It, it's Satan who's inflicting this pain, and he is, right? But let me ask you this. Is Satan trying to keep Paul from becoming conceited? That's why he says the thorn is given, right? Satan would have loved nothing more than this apostle of Jesus to become full of himself, wouldn't he? To become prideful, to become arrogant, to become cocky. Satan is not in the business of trying to humble Paul. He's trying to harass him, to intimidate him, to make him fear things, but he is not trying to humble him. Satan's intending to harass, Christ is intending to humble, right? And so I don't know how you can read verse 7 in any other way than to think the one who is giving the thorn is Jesus. It, it is God. He, he's using some sort of evil being to bring it to Paul. Maybe that, he, that being is the delivery mechanism, but behind that being is God himself trying to keep Paul humble, trying to preventively guard and look after him so that he doesn't become arrogant. It's a hard thing for us to swallow, isn't it? That Christ could be a giver of a thorn in our life. That he could be the one who has saw fit to bring it to us. But we must take God at his word. This is why I prayed that at the beginning. We have to take God at, our word, that he, at his word, even though it may not make sense to us. In some way, God is active in our suffering. God is active in overseeing our lives in such a way that sometimes thorns are brought to us. Sometimes those thorns are placed in our flesh. They're brought into our life, and God is not absent from that. He's doing it purposefully. He's doing it with redemptive intent. And if, if just on a practical level, if Christ is willing to bring us thorns, and if he knows that there is grace that can be given, a protective grace from pride that can be given in that thorn, we would be wise when we think of our kids, when we think of our friends, when we think of our spouses. We would be wise to not always try to shield everyone from thorns to try to not dethorn everyone's life, to think that the best life for people is just to have no thorns, to have no pain, to have no grief, to have no sorrow. This text tells you otherwise. And like we must not just be idolizing this life of being thorn-free, of having no pain, of having no suffering. There is redemptive intent that can be given with that thorn 
to, to keep us humble, to keep us dependent upon God himself. So verse 7, it tells us, it introduces this idea of why God, why Christ himself sometimes gives us the thorn, that it can be to keep us humble, to keep us dependent upon God. But the harder question, and many of you I'm sure have wrestled with this, you're maybe wrestling with this now, is why doesn't he remove it then? Okay, maybe I can wrap my mind around why he would give it to me for a moment. Why he would give it to me for a short season to keep me humble, to help me learn that lesson again. But why sometimes does he keep it there? Like why doesn't this God who says he loves me and is for me and is all powerful, why doesn't he take it away? And that's what verses 8 through 10 tell us. That's what they speak to us about when we see not just Christ's grace in giving a thorn, but Christ's grace in these closing verses. Christ's grace in not removing the thorn. If you look at verse 8, Paul says, recapping what took place, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's saying, he's letting these people know, when this was first given to me, in those initial days of this thorn in my flesh, I was begging Jesus to take it away. I don't think he just means he said three short sentences at some point in time early on, like, God, please take this away, time one. God, please take this away, time two. God, please take this away, time three. But that he is saying there were these seasons of him humbly, genuinely asking Jesus, please take this from me. Like, probably fasting. Asking the Lord to remove this thing from his life, whatever it was. This was a repeated, intense, I think, pursuit of deliverance from this thorn. Of relief from it. And don't we all do this? And it's not wrong for us to do this. When we have thorns that are given to us in the flesh, whatever they may be, our natural instinct is to ask God, to plead with God to remove it. I think we ought to do that. We ought to to cry out to the Lord to remove the sufferings in this life. We all long to live in that thornless world, don't we? And it's not a wrong desire for us in and of itself. It's it's deeply embedded within us. The Garden of Eden had no thorns in it. Have you ever read Genesis 3? The, the, the beginning of literal thorns came as a part of the curse upon humanity. Now, we were made to live in a thornless world, physically and metaphorically. That's why we long for it. That's why we pray for it. And when we know Jesus is strong enough to pull it out, when we know he knows right where it is, like a parent, like when my kids come and they have a thorn maybe in their finger, I would... I would know how to get it out, hopefully, right? I would, I would lovingly try to get it out. We know when Christ sees our life, he knows how to remove this. And he's strong enough to do it. That's why we ask him to do it. That's why Paul asked him to do it. But Paul is given a very personal and a very hard answer by Jesus to his pleadings, isn't he? In verse 9, he recounts how Jesus responded to him. He says that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Implied in that sentence is the answer, no. Isn't it? Like when Paul's begging him to remove this thing, Jesus is saying, no. I'm not going to. And he speaks, I appreciate that he speaks directly to Paul. If you have a red letter Bible, I'm guessing verse 9 is in red letters. 
in your Bible. It's one of the few places outside the Gospels that we have the actual words of the resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus speaks personally to Paul as he's pleaded with him. He doesn't just leave him to figure it out, but he speaks forthrightly to him and says, no, I'm not taking it away. And he says, instead, what I'm going to give to you is my grace to sustain you in it. I'm going to let you remain weak. I'm going to let you remain in pain, but I'm not abandoning you. I'm walking with you through it. And I'm going to enable you to bear up under this thing. And what we long for is the removal of the thorns, don't we? Well, that's why we plead for it. But what Christ often gives us is not the removal of the thorn, but the grace to endure it. And he says that this is how his power is going to be made more evident. Jesus says that his power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, His power is demonstrated by him being able to sustain his people, to to fuel our faith even when we have these thorns, to to trust him, to obey him even when he is bringing pain into our life. His grace, his power is going to be shown not just in sparing Paul from the thorn or sparing you from the thorns in your life, but sustaining you through them. That is how he's saying his power is made most evident. And this is not what we expect God to be like. We expect him when we humbly plead, we expect him to say yes. We expect him to, in his mercy and kindness, say yes, I'm glad you sought me out. I'll remove that thing for you. I know it's been hard for you. I I know it has been. I'll remove it. We expect him to give us the thorn and then for his grace to come in removing it, right? D.A. Carson said this well. He said, instead of that, like we want, uh, we want the thorn to be a precursor to grace. We want the thorn to come and then grace to come and thorn to be gone, right? We want the thorn to be a precursor to grace. D- what D.A. Carson said is that instead of that, Christ often brings that thorn as a vehicle of grace. Not as a precursor to it that then goes away, but as a vehicle for grace. As a a means by which he gives grace to us through that thorn and by keeping it in our life. And if you think about this, Christ could show his power in a momentary, very strong way by delivering you from that thorn, right? He could miraculously heal you of diseases. He could miraculously uh, rid you of any pains in your life in the moment. It would be glorious and grand. It would be this fleeting demonstration of power. But if Christ's power, look at uh, where he says that, end of verse 9, Christ's power may rest upon me. That is a more enduring demonstration of Christ's power, isn't it? If for months and years and decades Christ can enable you to press on in faith, that is a a multi-year, multi-decade often demonstration of his power. That will have far more effect on the people who watch you and far more effect upon your soul than just a fleeting momentary flash of power to remove the thorn from you altogether. This had happened 14 years prior to Paul writing this where Jesus in his grace had said, I am not removing that thorn. In the years that had ensued, Paul, I'm assuming as he's writing this letter, he still has this thorn. I see no indication that it was actually finally removed from him. But I think whatever it was, as he was writing this still in 2 Corinthians, uh, that he still had this thorn in his flesh. And he had learned over the years to be, he says, to be content with it. Not that he loved it, 
Not that he was glad to have it per se, though he says he boasts gladly of it. It's not like he's just some sucker for punishment and just loves being raked over the coals and just loves having pain. But the reason he can be content and the reason he can say he even gladly boasts of this thorn in his life and that he's not embarrassed by it is because he knows that Christ's power has been displayed over and over and over and over and over again as every day he woke up with that thorn, whatever it was, and Christ says, I have more grace for you today. Like he, he's experienced that so much. He has learned this contentedness for, the, for this thing that he had wanted nothing to do with and had pleaded for its removal. Now he's learned to embrace it and to accept it as a grace of Jesus in his life, as an opportunity for him to not just brag on God's former power of some deliverance he did 14 years ago, but, but his ability to brag on Christ's power today to help me to endure this. If Paul learned to be content with his thorn and to gladly boast of it, I would suggest to you that we need to be as well. That we need to learn to be content with the thorns that Christ leaves in our life. We need to learn to see those things as a chance for him to demonstrate his power. And we need to accept, based on texts like this, that sometimes, even as Christians, Christ will not remove thorns from our life this side of heaven. There's some things, there are thorns probably in the represented in this room right now that Christ is not going to remove until you reach heaven. And we need to embrace that. We need to, we believe in a God who can heal. We pray for him to heal. We pray for him to miraculously deliver people. We pray for him to fix what is broken, but sometimes he chooses to leave thorns and we must learn to accept that and to trust his providence. We ought to pray for people in accordance with what this text teaches us. We ought to pray desperately for deliverance from these things, to, to pray for freedom for these things, but we ought to pray for more things than just that, shouldn't we? Like, if you ever ask me to pray for healing for you, I will be glad to do it, but I will pray other things as well for you. That, that if Christ doesn't deliver you from that thing, if he doesn't remove it from your life, I'm going to pray like crazy for you that he will give you grace to endure it. And I think it is fine and wise and good to pray both of those things. To, to pray to a God who can deliver, but also pray to a God who sometimes doesn't, and to pray for his grace for your brother or sister to endure. So we should plead with God, we should, but we should trust him when he keeps the thorn there. As, a, as an aside to, to fellow parents in the room, I, I try very hard, and I felt bad about this at first, but with my kids or with anybody that I'm counseling, really, I try to avoid telling people these platitudes like everything's going to be okay. Or like, man, hey, God will take care of this. Like, God will remove that from you. Because sometimes he doesn't. And we don't want to set our children, set our brothers and sisters hope in the deliverance of thorns of the flesh in this life. We want to set them on what God has absolutely promised, and that is the resurrection of the dead and life in a new earth where there are no thorns. That we can point them to and ought to point them to day by day by day. But don't tell people everything's going to be fine. I hope it is. I pray it is. But we must not set our hope on the wrong thing. As you hear this message, I've been praying for many of you in the room, when you hear this message of Christ bringing a thorn into your life and of Christ keeping that thorn in your life, 
I know there's some of you who, when you hear that, it messes with your paradigm of what you think Jesus is like. It messes with your grid of what you think God can and cannot do, of what a loving God would or would not do. And you may think, Pastor Mark, like, what kind of God is that? Like, what kind of Savior is that? Who you say loves me and is for me and is powerful enough to remove these things, but who chooses not to. What kind of Savior is that? You may think, I don't want anything to do with him. Like, if that's what God is like, I don't want anything to do with him. And if pleasant graces of God tempt us to forget him, these painful graces of God can tempt us to shake our fist at him. Think like, how dare you give me this thing? How dare you keep this from me? What kind of God are you? And if that is you this morning, which I'm confident there's some in the room who it is, I want to point you to the, the clearest place I can to help you try to settle this question, this issue in your mind, that's to the cross of Jesus. Because the one the one who, if you're a believer in Christ, the one who brings thorns to you, bore thorns for you. There is something way worse than the thorns in your flesh right now. There, I promise you, there, there is something infinitely worse than that, and it is the judgment of God for your sin. It is the, the punishment that you deserve for your rebellion against your Creator. And I have good news for you that you can be delivered from that. And the way you can be delivered from that is because Christ suffered for you. He, when he went to the cross, he, if you have read the story, if you've heard the story, he bore a literal crown of thorns, didn't he? As part of his suffering, he had those things pressed into his temples and into his forehead as part of his suffering. He was feeling the physical agony of literal thorns, but more than that, he was taking the the metaphorical thorns of the judgment of God for your sins. He, He was taking the punishment that should rest upon you for all eternity. He was taking that upon himself. He had thorns placed in his flesh that you cannot even comprehend on your behalf. And Satan harassed him while he endured it, didn't he? endured it for you. When you were tempted to think, man, he's bringing this thorn to me. How could he love me? Like, what kind of savior is that? Look at the thorns he bore for you and know that he loves you, that he is for you, that he offers you forgiveness and eternal life. And he knows best. He is for you if you place your faith in him. He is for you. And even as he brings those painful thorns that sting and that you want nothing to do with, and even as he keeps them present in your life, you can look at the cross and you can know that he loves you, that he is for you, that he is trustworthy, that he is not against you, he is not your enemy, he is your savior. And you can know if you've placed your faith in him that as those thorns are given to you, they are not judgments of God upon you. They are not God angrily twisting the knife into your life. They are not God getting back at you for your sin of last night or last year of your childhood. But those thorns that he brings into your life and that he lets stay there, they are not judgments. You can know that they are graces. Because God's anger is done away with. God's judgment has been dealt with at the cross. And you can have confidence, I I end with this, 
you can have confidence if you have placed your trust in Christ because you have placed your trust in Christ that someday you will live in a thorn-free world. Won't you? That will be a glorious day. Pastor Larry, I appreciate you calling us to look forward when we are taking communion to the, that new earth, that day where we will eat and drink with the resurrected Jesus and we won't need to wear gloves. And we won't need to wear shoes as we walk on the ground. We won't need to be nervous of those pricks of thorns because we'll be in a place better than Eden. We'll be in a new earth that Jesus has gained for us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to sing one more song. Father in heaven, we, we hate thorns we long to live in a world that doesn't have them and we struggle to trust you when you bring them into our lives I pray for those who are suffering right now who can name a thorn or many in their own flesh right now I pray that you administer to them by your Holy Spirit to know that you are not absent in their suffering, but that you are with them, that you are demonstrating your power, not in the ways that they expect, but in the ways that they need. And, and I pray as a church family that even as we pray for deliverances, even as we pray for healings for each other and for loved ones and for people in our community and our world, we pray that we would have beneath that a trust and confidence that someday you will raise the dead not just remove thorns, but you will raise the dead. And may we trust you until that day and through that day with the thorns that you bring to us. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus.